Thank you, Pastor Debbie. It is great to be here with you this morning. Um, as has already been said, my name is Caleb Daniels, and I'm from the Nampa area, and I'm finishing my MDiv at NNU, and I... Uh, <laughs> let me make... Skip ahead, skip ahead. No, uh, I, I, I'm a pastor in the Treasure Valley. I help out over at College Church doing some stuff with uh, young adults, post-college um, kind of age there, but my day job, I actually teach high school Bible out in Greenleaf, Idaho, um, small little town of Greenleaf. If you've never heard of it, I'm not surprised, but... Um, I teach uh, high school Bible out there, and it's an honor to be with you this morning. Uh, I was so thrilled when I was asked to come and speak. Um, If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn back to that gospel passage this morning, Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 38. Uh, Here we find Jesus in the midst of his teachings in the temple. Um, And in the midst of this, he kind of calls out some of the religious leaders of his day, um, those that we expect to be Uh, the holiest and most devout, he calls them out. And then this outsider, um, this poor widow, um, he kind of lifts up and exemplifies as this is what true faithfulness looks like. We're getting close enough to Christmas. I think it's okay to tell a Christmas story. I think we're we're getting there. I don't want to like skip Thanksgiving, right? Like I know some people are very much like, no, not until Thanksgiving is over. Can we then start Christmas? But um, I have such a Good Christmas story this morning. I just thought I'd share it. Um, has anyone ever received a Christmas gift that they did not really like that much? Yes. Has anyone? Yeah. Yes. All right. That's good. Uh, so I'm the oldest of four siblings, um, and my younger brother Noah, who's directly below me, he's two years younger than me, uh, he had to have been, I don't know, five, six maybe. Uh, We were living in Oklahoma at the time, and um, we had this sort of tradition where we, our grandparents lived nearby, which as a pastor's kid, that's not always common to get to live near family, but at the time, uh, my grandparents were living near us. And my brother, uh, we kind of had this tradition, our grandmother would take us out one by one uh, Christmas shopping so that it was a bit of a surprise, because if we all went together, you kind of, it's pretty easy to snoop, right? There's four kids. It's like there wasn't a lot of surprises going on if we all went together. But our, my grandmother would offer to take us one at a time. So it was like a special date day with grandma. Uh, and it was so fun. Um, but my brother, out with grandma, was looking on the hunt for a gift for my mother. Um, and my family, uh, like many, we love like a good, chill kind of day to relax. Um, those days, you know, where you don't have to put on jeans, but you can just kind of hang out in sweats or pajama pants. In fact, my mom loves this so much, she has the habit of calling pajama pants happy pants. Her happy pants are her pajama pants. And so my brother's out and decides, you know what, mom needs some new happy pants. So he and my grandmother were at Nordstrom or Dillard's or somewhere um, looking for new happy pants. And he is kind of searching through the racks and finds some and he goes, oh my goodness, nanny, this has mother written all over them. And he's so excited, and he pulls them off and turns and shows them to my grandmother. And she audibly gasps a little bit as they are bright pink cow print pajama pants um, (laughs) that he thought, wow, these just, my mother will love these. She's going to love these so much. And she's like, are you sure? Like, there are some nice ones over here. No, no, these have her written all over them, which I don't think he got how offending that might be. But he... um, (laughs) He, uh, he was so convinced that my mother was going to love this that my grandmother was like, okay, okay, we'll, we'll get them for her. So he wrapped them up. Uh, they wrapped them up together. 
Um, and on Christmas, my grandmother gave my mom a bit of a warning. Hey, just so you know, Noah's gift. He's very excited to give it to you. So maybe, so maybe, maybe uh, so act excited. Uh, but uh, my mom got them, opened them. Oh, wow. Thank you, Noah. That's so great. Um, I love them so much. Um, and he was so thrilled to be giving them to her. He wanted to have her try them on immediately. And that kind of thrill was intoxicating. And to this day, this gift that no one, she would never have asked for in a million years, she still has those pajama pants these years later. Uh, I mean, they're a bit, she doesn't wear them anymore, but <laughs> she still has them. Uh, keeps them. They're one of those, you know, those clothing items that have been washed one too many times and should probably just stay in the drawer at this point. But she holds on to them and loves them. And I'm sure if I were to kind of unclip the mic and pass it around, we would all have stories of those gifts we were given that seemed insignificant, um, that hold so much value to us um, beyond their monetary value, um, that uh, those gifts that um, kind of like the widow this morning, um, though they were small, that what was given to us, the meaning was so large. Um, and that's kind of the story, uh, what our passage is about this morning. Because our passage, our passage this morning is about changing our perspective. See, Christ looks at the scribes, these legal experts of his day, parading around in extravagance, while others on the outside might see as an affirmation of God's blessing on them. Um, these lordly, extravagant religious leaders. But Jesus looks, and he sees them for what they are, exploiters. They're exploiting the poor uh, among them. These were the leaders that you wanted to be like, but instead, Christ warns us to watch out for them. They're going to get you, right? And similarly, then, Jesus sits across from the collection box for the temple. You can almost imagine the scene, right? He sits there, teaching his disciples amidst the perpetual clinging and clanging of coins, hitting one another as people come forward and drop their donations in the box. Some might include the sharp sounds of moderate sums of money hitting against the donations already in the box. Others might not be quite as impressive, but still good. Um, and occasionally, a person obviously well-to-do in long, flowing robes, holding their head high as they approach the place for donations and drop an absurdly large sum of money in the box, the cascade of coins showering them with a reverberating applause as they walk away um, for the obviously holy deed that they have just performed. However, in the midst of all this, it's not any of these loud, grand gestures that, of giving to which Christ is drawn, but the small, likely almost imperceptible sound of two small coins landing softly in the coffer amidst the surrounding cacophony. The minuscule donation of a poor widow, two lepta, small copper coins, the smallest of the Greek copper coin that you could have. These coins were worth one 128th of a day's pay each. Hardly earth-shattering stuff. You don't get a building named after you for donating two lepta. But as Christ hears the soft thud of these two small coins, and sees the widow come forward hesitantly and scurry away, it is this donation that he calls worth more than the donations of everyone who's been putting in the treasury put together. He asks us to shift our perspective, not to view the world by our spreadsheets, the sum gain of a specific donation, 
but instead to the heart of the individual giving the donation. See, those wealthy donors, as honorable as their heart, uh, as their intention and donation may have been, were giving out of the plenty of their lives. The poor widow gave out of the necessity of her existence. She is the personification of the sacrificial love of God in this moment, giving of her very essence for the betterment of others. It is very much last shall be first sort of eyes that Jesus invites us toward today. I'm not sure we always share Jesus's perspective very well, if I'm being honest. Um, I remember in junior high, I grew up Um, during that time when cell phones were moving from being kind of a thing a few people had to being a thing everyone had. And I know for some of you that makes me sound very young, and for some of you youngsters that makes me sound very, very old. Um, (laughs) But I grew up during this time. I was in junior high when everyone started getting cell phones. Um, And I finally got that cell phone in eighth grade, and it was one of those free phones that came with your phone plan, a little flip phone um, that had a couple, I don't know, snake, I think, on it or something. But beyond that, you made, fo- you made phone calls um, and you had texts and you had to like hit the key a certain number of times to get the letter you wanted right um, and you keep going. But I remember um, that what made you cool in junior high, at least one of the things, there's always several things in junior high that make you cool. There's always a, a, a strong list and everyone knows them. But one of them was how cool was your cell phone? And specifically, how many keys did your cell phone have? I was not very cool in junior high. My cell phone had about nine keys on them, right? It had, or 10 keys. It had the numbers, and then you hit them a couple times, and it turned them into letters in the text message. Um, the cool kids, they had the phones that flipped with the full keyboard, or slid in the full keyboard, or heaven forbid, the one that flipped all the way around and had the keyboard uh, on it. These were the cool kids. And as much as I can laugh at that, looking back as junior high ignorance, I'm not always so sure that we operate that much differently in the adult, quote-unquote, real world of today. <laughs> we judge the worth of a country. We have lists of what, which countries are better than other, others. There's several different lists of different types. Um, the biggest and probably most dominant one being the GDP, right? A nation's gross domestic product. It's what takes those A-list first world nations and separates them from those second or third world nations. And as we head into perhaps the most consumeristic time of the year, I can't help but reflect on the ways that we allow consumerism to shape our view of religion. We talk about different churches as though they're different competing brands offering us this God product, um, this fix-it God product, instead of as different extensions of the active body of Christ at work in the world. In such a framework, things like worship, small groups, youth ministry, Uh, and service opportunities become categories for us to judge a church on church Yelp rather um, than seeing them as means of shaping our lives um, to look more and more like that of Christ Jesus our Lord. It should come as no surprise then that we see one another through the same lens of what we might call consumerism because consumerism is far more interested in products to sell than it is in people. So it's not shocking then that we are pushed to see one another not as human persons, but as objects to gratify our own wants and desires. It's important for consumerism that we not also be too satisfied with ourselves, um, because it always has something to sell to us to make our lives better. 
And I worry sometimes that that's how we talk about God. Just sprinkle a little Jesus on, and it'll make your life better, right? Uh, which, which one in the vending machine is Jesus? All right, D6. There we go, right? Christ becomes a self-help product added into our lives and not a savior offering a complete transformation of our entire life. And that's what Christ offers in this passage today. Transformative grace. A grace that won't leave us as we are. It'll even change the way that you see things. Because what he exemplifies in our passage this morning is the eyes to see the kingdom. For while everyone else might look around and say, oh wow, look at those legal experts. They're up on the new trends. Long robes are so in right now. Did you see their camels top of the line? And not only that, but they haven't allowed it to go to their heads. They are so humble. They were praying for so long the other day, and it was beautiful. What great religious guys. We laugh, but I've heard these before. But Jesus, who sees to the heart, looks at them and warns against them and their wicked ways. They flaunt their wealth and holiness around. Their fortune is built not on the blessing of God, but on the abuse of the vulnerable and the poor. They eat the houses of widows. And instead, it's this poor widow who offers the least monetary valuable offering at the temple that day, who is held up by Jesus as the exemplar of faithful sacrifice. Hers, Christ says, is the largest donation made that day. For while others gave out of their excess, she gave out of her very necessity. This poor, vulnerable widow who had nothing realized the deep truth that faithfulness to God required all that she had and was, not simply what she was comfortable giving. And that's how this passage has been traditionally read. And I think it offers a great truth to us this morning and a good challenge. What are we willing, what are we allowing to shape our lives more? The way of consumerism or the way of the kingdom? Does our faith look more like that of the legal experts of that of the poor widow? Amazing, challenging stuff. However, there's a second way that scholars interpret this text. And it's by using kind of the text context within the larger gospel of Mark as a whole. So if you still have a Bible with you, I invite you to open up back to Mark chapter 12. If you're still there, congratulations, thank you. You are the true holy among us. Um, <laughs> so Mark chapter 12, we have, this, we have our text, right? Flip back a little bit. Just flip, keep flipping until you hit the start, right? So our fir- we have our first sort of chunk of Mark, starting in Mark 1. Don't worry, I'm not going to sit and read through it. I know we have lunch to get to. Uh, we got to beat the Baptist to the good lunch place, right? Um, so the, the kind of key, if I were to give us one key message in the Gospel of Mark, it's this. The kingdom of God is here. Jesus comes to announce this to us this morning. The kingdom of God is at hand. Um, everyone else just hasn't figured it out yet. So do we have those eyes to see the kingdom breaking out among us, or do we still think we're living in the old creation? Um, and so these, those first eight chapters or so of Mark is asking this question, who is Jesus? Um, and he's this person who speaks with authority, who comes into broken situations and brings restoration and healing. Um, in his hometown, across Judea and Galilee, 
Um, and even to those people on the wrong side of the tracks, right? We have that great story um, in chapter 8 where Jesus, uh, it, we might think of it as a Jewish horror story, right? He goes across uh, the water. There's um, a demoniac, right, who's naked. Uh-oh, first no-no, right? Um, in a graveyard, second no-no, right? Ritually unclean. And then there's pigs, right? <laughs> it's, it's gross, right? And even here, uh, Jesus has authority and power. There's this great section uh, between chapters 8 and 10. Uh, it's kind of bookended by two healings of blind men, um, where we realize that we, like these two blind men, are also blind. We kind of see it, but we don't really understand it. The disciples especially. It's where Peter says, um, Jesus says, who do you say that I am, right? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the King. And Jesus says, great, don't tell anyone. And then, Peter's, and then Jesus starts talking about how he's going to suffer and die, and the Messiah has to do all this. Um, and Peter goes, uh, excuse me, Jesus, um, I just called you the Messiah, and I don't know if you've read the job descriptions, but Messiahs don't suffer and die. They conquer and, and overthrow. And Jesus says, right, get behind me, Satan. Peter saw enough to get who Jesus was, but not enough to understand what that meant. Um, and so then, in chapter 11, we have this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Um, and for three chapters, chapter 11 through 13, Jesus is in the temple just causing a ruckus, right? He curses the fig tree in the temple. Um, he has, there's controversy over authority. Um, he is showing his own power uh, and might. He gives that parable of the tenant farmers, right, who misuse those things that God had given to them. There's questions about taxes. This is all about how we're using money, how the temple's using money in this day. Questions about the resurrection, that most important command. And then we hit where we are today. And I think the right chapters and verses, they're not, they weren't in there originally. They're nice to help us find what we need. But sometimes I feel like we break just a little too soon. Um, so thinking in the context of the fact that this chapter comes in the midst, this passage we read this morning comes in the midst of this sort of tirade against the temple. Um, I want to read kind of the end of our verse verses, and then kind of where chapter 13 picks up. Um, so Jesus sat across from the collection box for the temple treasury and observed how the crowd gave their money. Many rich people were throwing in lots of money. One poor widow came forward and put in two small copper coins worth a penny. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I assure you that this poor widow has put in more than everyone who's been putting money in the treasury. All of them are giving out of their spare change, but she, from her hopeless poverty, has given everything she had, even what she needed to live on. As Jesus left the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what awesome stones and buildings! Jesus responded, Do you see these enormous buildings? Not even one stone will be left upon another. All will be demolished. Do we catch the irony there? It's kind of sad. This woman has been faithful in doing what she's always been told good Jewish believers did, give to the temple, even at, the expense, at her own expense of her ability to provide for herself. Yet, that temple, as Jesus is tirading against it in chapters 11 to 13, operates in avenues of corruption and oppression, and unlike the eternal kingdom of God, is very much fleeting. 
He predicts the destruction of the temple, which we do know did occur not too much later, in 70 CE. And looking at the larger context of our passage this morning, Christ's words regarding the widow turn from, wow, look, she gave everything to the temple, to she gave everything to the temple. She is someone to be admired for her faithfulness, yes, but also one to be pitied. For the very thing she had been faithful to was misusing her faithfulness for its own gain. So what do we do with this? Overall, I think it takes much of what we've already discussed this morning and deepens its meaning and call to us today. For while our initial reading called us this morning and um, for while our initial reading called into question the ways of the world and offered us an alternative way, a faithfulness of the whole self to God, this reading calls into question the very religious structures built to help us on this journey. Reading our text and context this morning, we cannot help and try and keep the problem out there somewhere and the solution in here. For Jesus' very act of cleansing and calling out the temples displays the ease which was the out-thereness quickly invades the sanctity of our holy space in here together. The issue is not an outside-inside issue, as though what happens out there does not affect what goes on in here. That shaping, the one we've already spent some time discussing this morning, goes both ways. There are things in life, usually good things, um, that ask us to pursue them. And these are good things, right? Or else they wouldn't be worth pursuing in the first place. But often, in the fi- if we read the fine print, what they really are asking is for us to give our entire life to them. Everything we are in pursuit of them. Good things. The ability pr- to provide for our family. Um, a, even a safe family structure and unit. Um, I don't need to. I don't know that I need to make the list. I'm sure we all have something we can think of, but asks to give more than it gives back. Because this morning, um, what Christ wants us to remember is that there's one thing that is not fleeting, um, but eternal. The one thing worth giving our entire life to, as Christ says. Um, Come to me, those who are weary, um, and I will give you rest. My burden is easy, my yoke is light. Christ asks us to take up our cross, our very life, to live, uh, to die is gain for Christ, um, to give all of who we are is gain uh, for Christ. Um, because while the temple asks us to give everything, um, it doesn't give life. Christ offers us life. Um, And while it may cost us all that we are in a kind of oxymoronical work of faith and grace, it's in losing our life that we find it and find who we truly are in Christ. So that's our first way I think this text speaks to us, or I guess our second way I think our text speaks to us this morning. What are those places that are asking us to give everything? Um, And where should we be giving everything? And second, I think it's a warning a warning this morning that we got to be careful as we gather in this space. we got to be careful that we are not being those misusers of others. Um, it's far too often in the news that different church leaders are being, it's being realized those things they were doing in the shadows 
were not the same things they were doing behind the pulpit. And we need to kind of check ourselves. Are we being, are we offering people something eternal? Are we offering them that kingdom life um, that they so desperately need? Or are we offering them just a slightly religiously worded version of what society around us is already offering? A product to be consumed, um, a life in search of wealth and power. Or like Christ, are we offering them something so foreign, the call to lay down life, lay down power for the sake of all, um, for the sake of the widow, the orphan, um, and I think specifically of this widow um, that Christ looks on and regards as faithful, um, but also pities for the situation in which she finds herself. So it's a good word this morning. It's a hard word, but a good word this morning to us. Because while this is not something we can do in our own strength, we have someone who's already gone before us um, and invites us simply to respond, um, who doesn't want us to just struggle today, um, but invites us to live into that today now. The kingdom of God is here. Do you see it? It's all around us. Uh, The world just doesn't realize it yet. I'm going to go ahead and invite our worship team to come back up this morning. Um, As I'd love to kind of close reading that psalm we already read together as kind of a prayer. Uh, Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 148. God, is that you? (laughs) Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from heaven. Praise God on the heights. Praise God, all of you who are, are his messengers. Praise God, all of you who comprise his heavenly forces. Sun and moon, praise God. All of you bright stars, praise God. You highest heaven, praise God. Do the same, do the same, you waters that are above the skies. Let all of these praise the Lord's name because God gave the command and they were created. God set them in place always and forever. God made a law that will not be broken. Praise the Lord from the earth, you sea monsters and all the ocean depths. Do the same fire and hail, snow and smoke, stormy wind that does what God says. Am I reading the wrong psalm? I am, aren't I? I am. My apologies. Praise the Lord. Let my whole being praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord with all my life. I will sing praises to my God as long as I live. Don't trust leaders. Don't trust any human beings. There's no saving help with them. Their breath leaves them. On they, then they go back to the ground. On that very same day, their plans die too. The person whose help is the God of Jacob, the person whose hope rests on the Lord their God, is truly happy. God, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, God who is faithful forever, who gives justice to people who are oppressed, who gives bread to people who are starving, the Lord who frees prisoners. The Lord who makes the blind see, the Lord who straightens up those who are bent low, the Lord who loves the righteous, the Lord who protects immigrants, who helps orphans and widows, but who makes the way of the wicked twist and turn, the Lord will rule forever. Zion, your God, will rule from one generation to the next. Praise the Lord. If you've listened well this morning, um, The kingdom of God is here. The question is, do we have the eyes to see it?
Um, and those new eyes that Christ invites us to as we give our entire selves to him um, will not just change the way we see what's going on out there, but also maybe call out what's going on in here. Um, and that's perhaps equally as important. Hear this benediction today as we go. This is why I kneel before the Father. Every ethnic group in heaven or on earth is recognized by him. I ask that he will strengthen you in your inner selves from the riches of his glory through the Spirit. I ask that Christ will live in your hearts through faith as a result of having strong roots in love. I ask that you'll have the power to grasp love's width and length, height and depth, together with all believers. I ask that you'll know the love of Christ that is beyond knowledge so that you will be filled entirely with the fullness of God. Glory to God who is able to do far beyond all that we could ask or imagine. By his power at work within us, glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations, forever and always. Amen. Go in his peace.